podcast is brought to you by CEW Plus at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor as we work to serve our community during this unprecedented time of change. Resiliency is best demonstrated in times of challenges. Join CEW Plus Director Tiffany Mara as she talks to students, staff, faculty, and community members connected to the University of Michigan's Center for the Education of Women Plus in our podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. Today's podcast features Anastasia Marie, who is a master's student in the School of Environment and Sustainability studying landscape architecture. She is a 2022 recipient of the Joan P. Ireland CEW Scholarship, which provides support to deserving women students, undergraduate or graduate in any field, who need financial assistance in order to pursue a degree. Anastasia, I'm so pleased to get to talk to you today. Welcome to the Strength in the Midst of Change podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, I'd love to learn more about you uh, beyond that little bit of information I shared about you. Could you tell me a little bit about your story and how you decided to come to U of M for your master's degree? Well, it's a very long story, so I'll try to keep it short. I decided to come to UM after I was furloughed, like a lot of people, in the OG part of the pandemic, you know, like the shutdown portion of the pandemic. And I was thinking, well, this is an opportunity for me to decide what it is that I really want to do. And I thought about it long and hard, and I decided that I wanted to bring ecological consciousness into my work in whatever forms that would take. And that ended up leading me to the possibilities of landscape architecture as being that way of bridging all of my different experiences and interests and values and life history into a consolidated design and architectural practice. So I looked at the World Wide Web and I saw that Michigan had a landscape architecture program that was rooted in ecological thinking and design. And I thought, well, isn't that an ideal choice? So I I applied and I got in and now I'm here learning how to be a landscape architect. And thankfully, I was able to receive support from so many different places, including CEW+. And it's been a really wonderful, nourishing environment, and I'm glad that I made that choice. I can imagine what ecological thinking and design means. Like, I don't have a vision for how that plays out. Could you uh, provide some context for, you know, how ecological thinking and design combine with architecture? Yeah, the ecological thinking is rooted in science because ecology as we know it, like classical ecology is a science, but it's also traditional ecological knowledge that's rooted in community knowledge. So it's rooted in North American indigenous ways of knowing, it's rooted in ways of knowing within European and African diasporas in the continents. And so it's a, a wide variety of knowledge about how living beings and living being interactions work in the physical environment and there's just so many layers to that so much information so much to consider and what i like about ecological thinking and design how it works in tandem with landscape architecture is that 
it reconceives of a landscape as a place that's lived in. It's not just a place of objects for human use. It's an ecosystem. It's an ecological community. It's habitat. It's ecosystem functions. It's carbon sequestration. It's so many things. And it's things that we wouldn't be able to explore or even conceive of in the design process without that ecological knowledge. That's what I came here to learn how to do. And so far, I haven't been disappointed. Oh, that's good to know. When you think to like the different physical spaces that you've been in, to the different ecosystems that you've experienced, when you think about ecological design, are there some best practices out there of spaces where people interact, where it feels like that living ecosystem and not just a physical environment? Yeah, I've seen examples at different scales. Like, for instance, I was in Charlotte over the summer, Charlotte, North Carolina, and their park system consists of a variety of nature areas similar to Ann Arbor's park system, but it's in a, it's in a much larger and more urbanized and diverse city. But you have these parks that are also wetlands and it's a really interesting experience to be in a neighborhood that's not necessarily a wealthy neighborhood and then step into a park within the neighborhood and you're in a wetland and you're seeing all of these species of frogs and salamanders and you're seeing birds and diverse plants and it's just like this vibrant magical place in the middle of a city and so I'm thinking that more parks can be like that. They can be places of habitat where humans live, and it's not always tied to wealth and race and just political status. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. I really appreciate that example. I think I experienced something similar. My family went to Cincinnati recently, and on the riverfront, the whole area of the riverfront had been redesigned to be an open community space. There was nature involved and there was beautiful design, but there were also objects for people to interact. And as you were describing it, it reminded me of that a little bit, except that it didn't have that neighborhood feel and it certainly wasn't as um, embedded within a residential community. I know your work focuses not only on environmental conservation, but also centers the lived experiences of black communities. How do you approach the intersections between these two topics? Well, I approach it first by not viewing them as separate. Uh (laughs) In my world, it's all connected. What happens to non-human animals and wildlife, what happens with black people, what happens with ecological communities, land, water, ecosystems, It's all part of us and it's all part of our shared stories and our shared struggles. And so I've been thinking about that in terms of late in the context of swamp forests. So I'm very interested in swamp forests right now. They contain such a layered history and series of stories from different perspectives that I'm super excited to engage with. I'm also from a land that was once covered in swamp forests. I'm originally from Memphis, Memphis, Tennessee. 
So it's been part of my family's history since we were brought to this continent. And so I'm really interested in swamp forests, how they function as habitat, how they function ecologically with carbon sequestration, with filtering water through a mosaic of patches in the landscape, and how historically they were refuges and corridors for enslaved Africans fleeing slavery. They were trade routes between enslaved Africans and Native Americans. They were vital passages for the Underground Railroad. And they're just these ecological communities that connected this landscape through the meeting of land and water and living organisms in this really cool dynamic way that I want to explore in my design work today. And they open up for me the possibility of what Black healing and liberation can look like in lands like this, where the majority of us are descendant of enslaved people and are still in many ways dealing with the legacies of slavery in America and the structural inequities that it produced. Yeah, that's really quite powerful. In your vision of this liberatory vision, what would its highest potential be? Well, the highest potential might be beyond what I can do as a landscape architect. And ultimately, I want to see more Black people owning and stewarding land in regions of this country where we were enslaved. I would like to see a process of reparations happen, and I would like to see that happen beginning in cities where the divestment and the land theft has been most apparent. Mm -hmm. Going back again to the city where I'm from, we have a very rich history, including a history of racial segregation, of white supremacy, of the racial violence and structural inequities that came about from white supremacy. And we see that play out in the landscape. We see a general lack of Black ownership of land, even though the city is majority Black. We see blanket divestment from those communities. Mm-hmm. And then we see the level of decay and poverty and anguish that results from that divestment. And so I'm thinking with all of these vacant lands and these dilapidated buildings and houses that are intentionally left to rot, we can reclaim that as part of our reparations and begin restoring, rehabilitating and facilitating ecological community that we can steward ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that's ultimately the vision that I would like to see. I would like to see more Black people just taking care of each other through taking care of land. I'm hoping that my designs can be inspiration, fuel to ignite the revolution so to speak you know like it provides a blueprint of what's possible it excites people on what can be possible even if the structures that be aren't ready yet 
that is an amazing vision and it makes so much sense. And it also allows for individuals like yourself to kind of design these spaces that really do build community alongside with the environment, the physical resources, water, land, the living environment, living organisms. And I, I look, you know, at some of the policies recently in Detroit even of demolishing buildings. But then next to that, there are these beautiful gardens that are growing, vegetable gardens and other you know, just beautiful landscaped areas and how, you know, if it were more intentional and if it followed a vision like yours, how it could really have a lot of potential for the city and that, you know, suffers from the same things that you described about Memphis that, you know, nationally happened where right could be wronged in some ways, you know, not historically, but at least moving forward in small ways through your vision. I love it. Yeah, and I also think it's same as Detroit, that whatever happens, like there's always the threat of history repeating itself mm-hmm. through another face. So, you know, the, the face of today would probably be gentrification or a most recent phrase that I've heard, green gentrification, mm-hmm. where yeah. the greening of spaces in dilapidated, divested from neighborhoods it suddenly changes the economic future of those neighborhoods and pushes the long-term tenants and inhabitants out, regardless of whether or not they own their house. So there's a lot that goes into it that I'm hoping that I can get savvy with and design to just really think multiple steps ahead in tandem with the people who live there and always just put the the living inhabitants of the place first Mm -hmm. and whatever vision that I'm putting forth. Yeah. And to get rid of kind of the displacement model, you know, that is the gentrification, the, uh, you know, the greening initiative, you know, that then becomes unaffordable in the models that are currently out there for people of lower SES. I know you have two bachelor's degree, one from University of Vermont in natural resource conservation and a second from UNC School of Music. How do those fit into your vision, into where you're at now in your study? Well, I tell myself now that I needed to go through that meandering journey in order to get to this point. So when I was an undergraduate at the University of Vermont, I knew that I wanted to do something related to wildlife conservation, but I didn't know what that was. And I ended up openly exploring, and right when I graduated, the recession of 2008 happened. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't getting new jobs anywhere, nothing that could actually sustain me. And I didn't really know what the future held for me I was feeling disillusioned about scientific research, which was the bulk of what I had been exposed to at the University of Vermont. I knew that I wanted to explore something different. And I got into nonprofit work for a time. And through the nonprofit work, I ended up getting back into playing music, which I had been doing since before 
my first undergraduate at the University of Vermont, I grew up in the orchestra system through the public schools in Memphis. And I played in Memphis Youth Symphony all throughout high school. And I also sang and I would sometimes sing in my grandmother's church. So I just had this long history of always doing music, but never really considering it as a career option. And then as I was working with nonprofits and feeling that burnout from working in nonprofits, mm-hmm. I started getting into music as an outlet for that. And then eventually I started getting paid to play some gigs. And I thought, well, I could do more of this and less of the nonprofit administration. And so I went back to school and I went to the UNC School for the Arts. And that environment was unlike anything I had experienced before. It was a conservatory. It was rooted entirely in European classical music. Mm-hmm. It was intense and it was very challenging for me. And I was also going back as an older, non-traditional student. And so I was very out of place. It did not have the support that I experienced here at University of Michigan. It's like they weren't ready for a student like me mm-hmm. and it felt like it mm-hmm. so uh, I finished my time there nonetheless and I graduated with a bachelor's degree and I got to work right away just living the musician's life and so I was playing with symphonies I was playing chamber music I got into the local jazz scene and I was playing with a variety of musicians and bands and I was recording original music too and I got into teaching and I was living the freelance musician's life but eventually that just became too much for me I just wasn't making enough money and ultimately the vision that I had for wanting to work with wildlife in a meaningful way and just do ecologically rooted work it was missing And it was really hard to find that in the freelance musicians world that Mm -hmm. I was regularly participating in. And so I decided to come here. And ultimately, I think I would not have been able to come here with that clear vision had I not had that experience of being exposed to ecological literacy early on, to being exposed to a wide variety of ideas like different feminisms and critical animal studies and like really jargony stuff that doesn't really leave academic walls but it was still it was very interesting and meaningful to me like ecophenomenology and biosemiotics you know and i needed to be exposed to all of that and to be able to develop a creative practice through music to even imagine the possibility that I could find synthesis and really go in this direction with landscape architecture. Mm-hmm. So in a way, it's a meandering journey and it's very difficult to plan. In fact, I was saying it's, it's highly emergent. I couldn't have foreseen this 10 years ago at all. I couldn't foresee myself being here. But I do ultimately feel like this is exactly where I need to be And I couldn't have gotten here without all the hills and craters I had to pass through. 
you know, my son, I have not a musical bone in me. And so like anyone who can play any instrument is a marvel to me. Um, and he plays the trumpet and he's in jazz band. And last night he had a band performance with his middle school, you know, with other seventh grade middle schoolers. I hear Conrad constantly playing his trumpet upstairs. Like he's constantly practicing. He loves it. But it's a whole different experience when you have all the tones coming together. And when the orchestra itself is in such high performance, like when you were talking about the swamp forest, it reminded me of that, of like all of these components of the swamp forest, the living pieces, the history of the Underground Railroad, the refugee for enslaved Africans, you know, the H2O filtering, the carbon refinement, all of that, like we're just components into that orchestra that is the swamp forest. And so as you were just talking about your musical background, like it hit me you're taking that lens of your musical background and what it means to perform in a setting with others and applying it now to landscape, which is quite beautiful. And, you know, interesting to see how that kind of model kind of fits within both aspects of your work. Yeah, that's a cool way of thinking about it. Because I am a musician and I've been very much soaked in jazz of late, so I'm really feeling thinking in jazz. Uh-huh. I see voices and call and response happening all the time, and it's really cool to imagine with Swamp Forest how that plays out in this really rich and complicated and beautiful composition, like all of these different voices that you just named. Yeah, it's just an interesting thing that hit me. And it's only because I went to my son's band concert last night. But, you know, I imagine the intersection of that isn't something that a lot of people in your field have, which makes you pretty unique. You know, oftentimes when students first learn about their scholarship, they have some sort of initial reaction. Did you have an initial reaction when you found out about the Joan P. Ireland scholarship or any of the others that you received at U of M? Yes, and it was praise. (laughs) (laughs) yeah it was it was immense gratitude like a sigh of relief I was so happy (laughs) because I I wasn't expecting anything because I applied late and I didn't even know if I fit any of the criteria for receiving a scholarship because I, I wasn't a mother I guess I'm technically in a STEM degree, but I don't know how much um, the University of Michigan classifies landscape architecture as STEM. I think we are STEM, but I wasn't sure about that, and I wasn't pursuing a PhD, and there was all of these other things. And so I was just concerned that, oh, is there a place for me? Like, should I even apply? And Aaron encouraged me to just apply Uh and do it. Uh And I did. And I was expecting the worst because I have been conditioned to expect the worst. And so when I received news that I was awarded the Jonty Ireland Scholarship, I was so excited. I'm like, oh my goodness, this is the sign that I needed because otherwise I didn't know how I was going to make it work. <laughs> oh, well, I'm so glad you're a part of our community. You know, I often ask guests about their self-care practices Do you have any advice for your fellow students on how to stay mindful of one's mental health during these difficult times? You know, and difficult is all relative. It's school, it's the pandemic, it's, you know, the world happening around us, systemic racism that continues. Yeah. So when it comes to systemic racism, I remember that it's not just me. It's like, we're all, we're experiencing this as a population, 
And so whatever effects are going to happen are going to be at the population level, not mm-hmm. so much the individual level. And so that helps me to let go and not take in all of the muck that comes with it. Mm-hmm. So I guess in terms of self-care, I don't know that I'm one to give out advice, but I can tell you what I have been doing to feel better about my life here. One, I straightened out my sleep situation. So I had an issue with my bed early on that made it very difficult for me to sleep. It was exacerbating my back pain and sciatic pain. And that's already a chronic pain that I deal with from a previous surgery that I had. Mm. And so when I was not sleeping, everything was hard. When I figured out how to sleep again, then that helped to make things easier. And then my, my resources started to kick in. And one of my resources is to not take myself so seriously, (laughs) which is, you know, it's it's easier said than done, especially when you're in your first semester of grad school, like everybody comes in taking themselves seriously. Mm -hmm. You're in grad school. Of course you're serious because you're a grad student and you're going to be a professional. You're going to be a leader in your field and you must take yourself seriously right away because if you don't, things will fall apart. Well, I found that by taking myself seriously, I was interfering with my own work. Mm-hmm. And so once I was able to let that go, then I could actually start doing what I came here to do. And it's since been much easier. And then finally, this might seem odd, esoteric, or even pretentious, but I remember my head. I remember that I, that I have a head and that my head is balanced on my spine. Mm-hmm. And... When I remember that, I can feel just a little bit better and a little bit more connected. And then I can begin to feel other things like, oh, when my head is balanced on my spine, then I'm more enticed to see. I want to actually look around and not just be so tunnel vision or zeroed in or whatever it is that I'm focusing on or wherever it is I'm trying to get to. Mm -hmm. I remember, oh, I have a head. It's balanced on my spine and I have eyes in that head and those eyes can see like to the edges of the earth and far beyond. And it just makes me feel free. If I remember that my, that my head is free to move and my eyes are also free to move in my head, then all the rest of me is free too. And whatever it is that I'm working on, whether it's a, a deadline for a big project or finishing up a, a quiz or writing a paper, as long as I remember my head and my eyes, then I feel like I'm going to be okay. But I know that when I don't feel okay doing those things, it's because I've forgotten myself. It's because I've forgotten my head. Mm-hmm. And that's me bringing in, like, ancestral knowledge of not losing my head. So I'm literally constantly re-engaging with myself to not lose my head. Hmm. It's interesting. When you first started this, you said, I don't know if I'm the best person to answer this, but I tell you what you just described to me is 
a mindfulness practice I will certainly carry forward with me. And even as you were talking, I was following you in the process of remembering my head, remembering it's on top of my spine, remembering to look around. And um, quite a powerful technique you just shared. Thank you for uh-huh. that. Oh, well, I'm glad it was helpful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure whoever listens to this might also gain from it. Well, Anastasia, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for inviting me to this. Thank you for listening to CEW's podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. To learn more about this episode or the services and virtual programming offered by CEW+, please visit cew.umich.edu. Here at CEW+, we navigate circumstantial barriers by providing academic, financial, and professional support to help you reach your personal potential. Established to support women through higher education, we lift up women and all underserved communities at the University of Michigan and beyond. Through career and education counseling, funding, workshops, events, and a diverse, welcoming community, we exist to empower. We are CEW+, and we are here to help you reach your potential. The University of Michigan resides on the traditional territories of the three fires peoples, the Ojibwa, Odawa, and Potawatomi.